Whether you're here in this room or watching online, we're glad to have you here. I want to begin today with a question, and that question is this. How many of you have ever worn uh, an item of clothing or a pair of shoes by one of these two brands? Anybody ever worn a Puma or Adidas clothes? Most of you. Um, So I I learned this week the story behind these two companies. Puma and Adidas started in the uh, laundry room of the Dassler family. This is Adolf Dassler uh, on the left and Rudolf Dassler on the right. Rudolf has the glasses. And they lived in uh, the 1920s in Germany and they began Dassler shoes in their mom's laundry room. The company went on to see some some pretty uh, early success. They became popular among Olympians, and so many of the Olympians who won medals in the 1930s in Germany uh, wore Dassler shoes, but then the world was transformed through World War II. And there's a famous story about uh, Adolf and uh, Rudolf and their kind of uh, sibling rivalry beginning during uh, the bombing of Germany by the Allied forces, and Rudolf and his family were already in a bomb shelter, and Adolf and his family showed up in the bomb shelter, and uh, a phrase was used by by Rudolf. I won't use it here because I want to keep preaching this sermon. Uh, But but Adolf thought that he was talking about him when, in fact, it seems Rudolf was talking about the Allied forces that were bombing them. But needless to say, that began a sibling rivalry that began pushing their companies in different directions. And so through the war and then after the war, these brothers became hated rivals. And Adolf, his nickname was Addy, A-D-I. And so taking his nickname, Addy, and the first three letters of his last name, Das, of Dassler, he made Adidas. And then Rudolf uh, took the, the name of uh, uh, his, his nickname, and over the years it became what became known as Puma. And so in the city that they grew up in, which is a really long German word that I'm going to butcher, so I'm not even going to try it. It starts with H. That's about, that's about as far as I can get at pronouncing it. They, they founded their companies on two different sides of the river going through their town. And so Adidas was on one side and Puma was on the other. And, and to this day, they are thriving multi-billion dollar athletic shoe companies. And it all began with a sibling rivalry. Now, I I tell you that story today because our message today in the series that we're in called Relentless is impossible to understand without understanding sibling rivalry. Now, we're going to talk about a story that really begins in the book of Genesis, but it doesn't come to fruition until the book we're in, the book of Obadiah. If you're here with us for the first time this Sunday, or maybe you're watching online for the first time, we're in a series this summer through a section of the Bible known as the Minor Prophets. Most of these books don't get a whole lot of airtime. In fact, I've been preaching for 15 years. This is my first sermon I've ever delivered on the book of Obadiah. Uh, And uh, I'm really excited. I'm grateful for my friend Jeremy Jernigan, who was our guest last week. He led us through uh, a message on the book of Amos. And uh, if you missed that, you can go check it out on our website. Uh, But today we're going to be in the book of Obadiah. And since this is like my first message on this book, I'm assuming that a lot of you haven't spent a whole lot of time in this book either. And so I want to give you a little bit of background. If you're taking notes, there's a place on our handout to write down some of these facts. Obadiah is the shortest book in all of the Minor Prophets. It's one of a couple books in the Bible that is literally one chapter long. Uh, There's actually only 21 verses in the book of Obadiah, only 291 words. 
So if you were to type it out uh, double-spaced on a piece of paper, it'd be basically one piece of paper. Unless you use Courier New and triple size margins, like a lot of us did in college, and then it'd be a little bit longer, uh, but it's a pretty short book. Obadiah is a fairly common name in the Bible. There's actually 12 different people in the Bible named Obadiah, which is why it's hard for us to kind of date the book, because we're not exactly sure which Obadiah it is that wrote the book that bears his name, which is why uh, we're a little bit unclear on when this book happens. Does it happen in the 840s, or does it happen in the 590 to 570? I tend to think, if I had to pick, that it's probably in that that later date, and I'll talk about why later, but uh, we're not totally sure where it falls. If you've been following along in our reading plan, you had nine chapters of Amos to read last week. You only have 21 verses of Obadiah to read today. I read it out loud this week to time it, and I'm a little bit of a fast reader. It took me three minutes and 15 seconds. So uh, even if you still watch commercials with your TV, that's basically one commercial break. So you can read through Obadiah this week. I believe in you. You can do it. Um, and uh, we encourage you to, to jump into our reading plan. It's available on our website and in the lobby if you don't have a copy yet. But uh, moving into Obadiah today, here's going to be our big idea. Our big idea is this. How we treat others reveals a lot about what we believe about ourselves and God. What we're going to see in the book of Obadiah today is that, that how we treat other people, that actually reveals a great deal about what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about God. They're all connected. Now, I said Obadiah is a short book. I thought about reading it all to you, but I started reading it, and I got about two minutes in. I was like, oh, this is too long. So um, I'd encourage you to open up to the book of Obadiah today if you have your Bible. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, just turn to the book of Matthew. It's in the New Testament, and go towards the front. If you're in a physical Bible, hit, hit the middle. That's Psalms. Go towards the back. And Obadiah is basically just one page here uh, between Amos and Jonah. If you're here with us in the room today, I want to say thanks for joining us. We're kind of moving forward as we continue to kind of move into this new normal. We've kind of given you guys an opportunity to sit closer to the front. We do like to be together. Uh, and so we are leaving space in the back. If you're looking for social distance, there is room for that. Um, but we're grateful for the opportunity to just feel together. And this room seats 900 people, and we're nowhere close to that. And so we're uh, reintroducing something we use at the college with these pipe and drapes to give us a little bit more of a tight feel today. And thanks for, thanks for making the change with us. But if you have your Bible, whether it's physical or digital, I'd encourage you to stand up. And we're going to read this first passage from Obadiah together. Uh, we're going to honor God's word as we begin this morning. Beginning in verse 1, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Lord God has said about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us go to war against her. Look, I will make you insignificant among the nations. You will be deeply despised. Your arrogant heart has, has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. In your home on the heights who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you seem to soar like an eagle... And you make your nest among the stars, even from there I will bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. Heavenly Father, we pray as we open this book that is new to a lot of us. 
We pray that our hearts would be open and that we would find new and fresh insight from you about who you are and how you're calling us to live in this time. We pray that we would believe about you and believe about ourselves and treat others in a way that lines up with your vision for us and this world. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Now I mentioned in the book of Obadiah, we're going to learn about some sibling rivalry. And that rivalry is related to this this nation of Edom. And in the book of Obadiah today, we're going to learn three important insights about posture. Now, now posture is a word that gets used in a variety of contexts. If if you were like me and grew, grew up without really good posture, I had to go to a, a doctor to learn that I had just a slight bit of scoliosis. I avoided wearing any sort of weird, you know, devices to help me stand up, but I don't have the greatest posture in the world. What we're going to talk about today is not our physical posture, how, how strong your core is or how, how tall you stand. We're talking about the posture of our hearts and the way we relate to other people and to God. And here's the first insight about posture that we're going to learn from the book of Obadiah. That Edom's posture towards God was pride and arrogance. Edom's posture towards God was pride and arrogance. The posture of the heart of this people towards God was, was pride and it was arrogance. Now, for a lot of us, we're not familiar with ancient Near Eastern geography, but I got a map for you today. Uh, if you look in the bottom right-hand corner of the map, in the yellow area, in all caps, is the word Edom. And Edom was a nation in the Middle East in the day of Obadiah. Edom is actually uh, another word for the Hebrew word Esau. So the people who live in Edom are the descendants of Esau. And Esau and his twin brother Jacob were the sons of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. This is one of the patriarchs of the Hebrew people. The people who lived in Edom watched as God judged the people of Israel in 586 BC as the Babylonians came in and conquered the city. And the people of Edom, they had incredible pride in themselves because they believed that they were unconquerable. The people in Edom could always retreat to this area known as Petra, which was a a fortified city up in the mountains. That's why in in Obadiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, God describes their confidence in being the people in the cleft of the rock. And they they lived down in the valley, but they believed that they could go up into the mountains to Petra, and they had had this impenetrable fortress, this stronghold they couldn't be defeated in. And so beginning in in, in Obadiah verses 1 through 4, what we see is that God speaks to their heart posture that they were proud, that they were arrogant, that they looked down on everybody else's, hey, we have it all together, we can take care of ourselves, we're self-confident to the point of arrogance, there's nothing that can touch us. And and God goes on through the prophet of Obadiah in verse 4 saying that though you think you're like an eagle, that you will just soar above and stay Um, impenetrable and beyond vulnerable. One day I will bring you low. One day I will bring you down. When you put yourself in a posture of pride and arrogance towards God, you're setting yourself up. And we see that in Obadiah, but we also see it in, in the New Testament. One of the disciples of Jesus, Peter, he writes, God resists the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. First time I ever heard this passage preached on, 1 Peter 5, the person who was speaking said that God has a plan A and a plan B. God's plan A is for us to humble ourselves, to have a sober and accurate image of ourselves, to recognize our weakness and our frailty and our insecurity without God. So God's plan A is that you humble yourself. God's plan B is that he humbles you. And let me just tell you from personal experience, you want to choose plan A. It's easier, it's quicker, and it's a lot less painful. Because what we see throughout the Bible is that God is opposed to the proud. Now, the problem with pride is twofold. One, it's really hard to see in ourselves. And two, it's often really hard to see in other people. It's one of those more invisible sins. If, if somebody has a problem with some sort of substance, well, eventually you're going to see them consuming that substance. If somebody's got a problem uh, with some sort of sexual sin, they often need somebody else to be involved in that sin, and so it's easy to see. If somebody is greedy, it's often easy to see. But when somebody is proud, it often goes for years under the radar. And yet, pride is at the root of all sin. I love how C.S. Lewis describes pride. He says, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is the sin underneath and at the root of every other sin. And this is why so often pride is the sin that is most present in the people of God. Pride is the sin that most often shows up in people who have already begun following Jesus and have by his grace begun to lay down some of those more visible sins. Pride is, is insidious. It resists being addressed and removed. And, and what pride does is it props ourselves up on something other than God with a stiff neck that refuses to surrender to God's agenda and to God's leadership. And this is why God begins in Obadiah chapter 1 with pride in Edom's heart. Because he knows that if he can tackle this sin, if they will repent over this sin, then everything else will follow suit. But the problem is, is that Edom has set itself up in pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency, not depending on God. And friends, we are like Edom when we prop ourselves up on anything other than God's grace and mercy. Now, a lot of us don't think we're propped up. We don't walk around with a cane or something else to give us support and strength as we move. But all of us in our hearts are propped up on something. It's that thing we reach for when life has us reeling, when you get a piece of bad news, when you fail, when things don't turn out the way you want to, or if you just live through a year like 2020, you, you, you prop yourself up on something, you grab something for support. And we are like Edom 
in our pride and arrogance when we prop ourselves up or lean ourselves on anything other than God's grace and mercy. And that's why I think all of us today can relate to Edom. Because there's a place in our lives, or maybe there was a place last year where we realized, man, what I'm leaning on for support is shaking. Because it's not God's grace and mercy. As the book of Hebrews says, what can be shaken will be shaken so that what cannot be shaken will remain. And God's grace and mercy is the only thing that cannot be shaken in this world. And so what God wants to do in Edom is he wants to move Edom from pride to humility. From I'm capable of taking care of myself and nothing can get to me to without God, everything about me can be taken away. Everything can be removed. I've titled this message Relentless Humility because that's the heart quality Obadiah is trying to form through this message in the people of Edom and the people of Israel. A relentless humility that resists the drug and the lure of pride. I've discovered in the last year places in my life where I didn't know I had pride where I didn't know I had arrogance, where I didn't know I had self-sufficiency. Because when you go through a crisis or a season of adversity, what it does is it shines a spotlight on every place you're depending on for support and strength other than God. And over this last year, I've been reminded that, that I am more broken, that I am capable of more sin, and that I am in need of more grace than I realize. And that's what the prophets are supposed to do. The prophets are not fun books to read through, you know? That's why most of us don't read them. They're hard. As our friend Jeremy said last week, he thought I was crazy for leading you through this series. I watched that. I heard that. Jeremy, if you're watching today, I heard you. But that's because we don't come to church to have our biases reaffirmed and just be told things we already know about ourselves. We come because we want to experience the truth of Romans 12, 1 through 2. We want to give ourselves as living sacrifices to God to not be conformed to the pattern of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, which means we have to move from one state of mind to another, one way of thinking to another. From the way of pride to the way of humility. And Edom's posture towards God, it was all pride and it was all arrogance. And that's why we'll see in a little bit that how they treat others, it reveals what they believe about themselves and God. Let's keep going in Obadiah. Turn down to verse 10. Obadiah hears this message from, says this message to Edom. Edom, you will be covered with shame and you'll be destroyed forever because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. On the day you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth, while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. Do not gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity, and do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction." Do not boastfully mock in the day of distress. The second insight we get about posture from Obadiah is that Edom's posture towards others was indifference and gloating. The way that Edom related to the people of Israel 
was a spirit of indifference and gloating. I mentioned that this book is really rooted in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis tells us the story about Isaac and his wife, Rebecca. Rebecca becomes pregnant and she's pregnant with twins. And these twin boys from even in utero are in conflict. When, when, Esau, when, uh, when Esau comes out, his brother Jacob is literally holding his heel. And that's why he gets the name Jacob, because it means heel grabber. They didn't have really fancy names like we do today with fancy spellings. Um, you know, we want to have the most inventive, unique name for our kids today. You know, it was just, oh, he's grabbing the heel, therefore he's Jacob. Esau, what does Esau mean? It means red because he was red in color. And so Esau is red. They were very simple in their naming back then. But, but from the very beginning, they're in conflict. Later on, Esau will literally sell his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of stew. Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, will, will convince their father, Isaac, to give Jacob the blessing that was due to Esau. There is there's violent conflict here, so much so that after this happens, Esau says to Jacob, I'm going to kill you. And Jacob has to flee and be gone for 16 years before he has any more contact with his brother. And that's the root of this conflict between Israel and Edom. And so when Israel finally is judged by God for their wickedness and idolatry, Edom sits by and watches the Babylonians come in and they just, they just gloat. They're like, man, I'm so glad our brother is getting what comes to him. I'm so glad God is finally bringing it on them. I'm, they're just like throwing a party with confetti and fireworks and gloating over it. There's other places that Obadiah says that they just sat with indifference they didn't gloat, but they didn't do anything. They just said, oh, you know, whatever happens, happens. Whatever happens to him, happens to him. And, and this is where, as I was reading through Obadiah, I was convicted about places in my life and seasons in my past where when people that have been my enemies, people who I've been opposed to, when they went through some season of adversity, I found myself It's one of the signs, if there's somebody you need to forgive, that you haven't forgiven them. The response of your heart when they go through adversity. That's how you know that your heart is hardened to somebody. When they lose their job, I mean, this is church, so we should be honest. You're happy. When that person breaks up with them, or they get a divorce, or they get fired, or they go through some season of adversity. You go, what goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. They had it coming. And the problem is, is while those are very understandable responses when we have been hurt or we feel betrayed or we sense that injustice has happened, we're not responding with the heart of God. We're responding from our hearts of flesh. This is why we have to ask the question, do the things that break God's heart also break ours? When the people who were created in his image that he loves, when they go through suffering and loss, is our heart towards them compassion or is our heart towards them indifference and gloating? When, when we watch somebody get caught, do we gloat 
Or is our heart mourning that they are experiencing suffering and pain and loss? See, our values in those moments are revealed, and so often what happens is it reveals that our values are not God's values. Even in our culture today, we have this tendency to gloat when the other side loses or gloat when somebody else really shows them, you know? Man, he owned the libs. Where is owning people in this book? Where is pride and arrogance and letting them have it from a place of being above them in this book? See, our values so often are the values of the culture and the country we live, not the God that we serve. And what we believe about God and we believe about ourselves shows up in how we treat people. And so when we stand in indifference and we say, you know what, I see that happening to them, but no, who cares? They ain't got it coming. We're like Edom. And this is why I, I have this, uh, this love-hate relationship with social media. See, I don't think social media is the problem inherently. I think there are problems with social media. I think what social media has done, though, is it has revealed what's been in our hearts all along. And so we're seeing an apocalyptic era. The word apocalypse literally means unveiling or revealing. We're seeing a revealing of what's in the heart of humanity because we can type and post and respond way faster than our brain can filter what we think is actually publicly appropriate. And friends, we can't say that we love God and dehumanize people. We can't say that we love God and then in the way that we treat people, Treat them as if they're less than human. We can't say, oh my gosh, I'm so happy to go to church and I'm going to post what I'm reading in my Bible and then later that day speak about people in such a way that doesn't then align with this book. This is why we need to go through a section like the Old Testament prophets because it holds up a mirror to the places in our lives where there is a disconnect between what we say and how we live, between what we believe and how we treat people. And we are like Edom when we fail to show God's heart towards those who bear his image and for whom his son gave his life. We're like Edom. When we get into a fight on social media and we think that the win is beating a person down and tearing them apart. Yes, Ephesians 6 does says we demolish strongholds and we take down every lofty thought that is opposed to God. But it doesn't say that we destroy people. And we demolish people. And we take apart those who are made in God's image. And I will confess here today that on multiple occasions in the last few years, I have been a wuss. Because I have seen people that I know who claim to love God and love people on social media post and comment and respond in ways that lack all of that. 
And like Edom in indifference, I've just kept scrolling. And our call as brothers and sisters and members of the family of God, parts of the body of Christ, is when we see someone acting in a way that is absent a belief that the other person was made in God's image, that the other person was someone for whom Jesus gave his life, that we ought to not just keep scrolling. It's like when you're driving past an accident and no one has stopped yet. And you go, I just can't be bothered to stop. Yesterday on the pitch in Europe, a young man kicked a ball and then had a cardiac incident. He dropped to the grass and he was in cardiac arrest. His closest teammate ran to him, turned him over, made sure that his tongue was cleared his airway and he began performing CPR. The teammates came around them and they circled them so that the cameras couldn't record this. They literally brought him back. Medical personnel ran in the field with the paddles. On the first paddle, they restarted his heart. That young man is alive today in hospital. Because when that young man saw his friend in danger, he didn't in indifference keep going, but he went and rendered aid. And as followers of Jesus, when we see other followers of Jesus, not people that you don't know, because some people we all know on social media, we don't actually know. But the people that you actually know, when you see them responding in a way that maybe they're right, but it completely is dehumanizing and demeaning someone else, we can't just keep scrolling. We can't just respond with indifference. We can't say, you tell them. We have to not only have the right theology, we have to share it the right way. Because the Pharisees, in the day of Jesus, what did Jesus say? On the outside, you look good. You have all the right beliefs. But on the inside, you're a rotting tomb. I know it's uncomfortable in here, and I'll be honest, in in addition to being one of those people who's been indifferent, I've said stuff I shouldn't say. But the way of Jesus is a different way. And he calls us to follow him, even if it means it's a lonely path. Let's jump back into Obadiah, final section. Obadiah 1.5 says, if thieves came to you, if marauders, I love that word, by the way, marauders. I wish we would reintroduce that in our vocabulary. It's a fun word, marauders. If marauders by night, how ravaged would you be? Wouldn't they steal only what they wanted? If grape harvesters came to you, wouldn't they leave a few grapes on the vine? How Esau will be pillaged, his hidden treasures searched out. Everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. He will be unaware of it. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration. Will I not eliminate the wise ones of Edom and those who understand from the hill country of Esau? The third insight we get about posture is that God's posture to the proud is opposition. He brings justice on behalf of the oppressed. So we talked about Edom's posture towards Israel. They were indifferent. They gloated. 
talked about Edom's posture towards God. They were proud and arrogant. Well, God's posture, as revealed in the book of Obadiah, two situations of injustice is that he's opposed to the proud. And when people are carrying out injustice, he brings justice. I mentioned earlier, there's some things about Obadiah that are unique. Again, there's 12 books in the Minor Prophets that we're going through this summer. Obadiah is the shortest. It's also unique in the fact that Obadiah is the only Minor Prophet that is including a message of judgment addressed to a foreign nation. All the other books, Hosea, Joel, Amos, which we've already covered, next week, Jonah, and then Micah, and then Nahum, and then all the way to Malachi— All of the rest of the books are about God's judgment on Israel or Judah, God's people. The book of Obadiah is the only book with a message of judgment against another nation. That's Edom. But what's also unique is that the book of Obadiah is not sent to Edom. It's sent to Israel. It's a book that Obadiah gives Israel with a message of judgment about Edom. Now you go, Scott. Why is that and why does it matter? Well, it's unique because God does not judge Babylon and Assyria when they come and destroy Israel and Judah. They're tools of God. But God never designed Edom to be used by God in that way. They just allowed themselves to get in a position where they were actually opposed to the work God wanted to do. They were co-opted into that process. And what happens is that Israel goes, look, I know I'm supposed to get judged. I just didn't think it was going to come from Edom. Look, I know we're getting judged, but I didn't think it was going to come from this other side over here. And so what happens is that Edom carries out injustice against Israel, and Israel begins to wonder, God, do you see this? God, do you care? And the book of Obadiah is this loud declaration to Israel that when it comes to what Edom does, God sees, and God cares, and God is moving on their behalf. The book of Obadiah is a reminder— that God is opposed to the proud, and in this instance, the proud is Edom, and God is going to do something about it, something rather harsh. This is one of the reasons that I think that uh, Obadiah was written in that later period, 590 to 570, because in 563, Edom is defeated by the Babylonians. The Babylonians defeat Judah in 586, and then in 563, they go down and they defeat Edom. And God's promise is fulfilled. When you read through the book of Obadiah this week, remember it takes three and a half minutes. You can do it. When you read Obadiah this week, what you will see is that God is incredibly harsh and you see God's wrath against Edom. It's one of the things about this section of scripture that's kind of hard to swallow is that throughout the minor prophets, we have to wrestle with God's wrath. This is not a topic that gets a whole lot of airplay. You're not going to see a book about God's wrath that tops the Amazon bestseller list. We get a little bit squirmy when we start talking about God's wrath. But let me just say this. If you are someone who has experienced injustice, you want God's wrath. If you're somebody who has been hurt or wounded or violated or taken advantage of by God's wrath, by somebody's injustice. You want God's wrath to come to bring that person accountable. God's promise of justice is a balm to the oppressed. 
I'll never forget years ago before we had kids, I was working on a sermon late one night and my wife, Danny came home and the, the kitchen table was just covered with commentaries. It was just books and books and books and books and books. And, uh, and she's like, what are you doing? It was like nine o'clock. I'm like, I'm working on this sermon. What was your sermon about? I said, it's about hell. She's like, okay. I said, I'm just, I'm struggling with this sermon. She goes, why? It's hell. That's easy. I said, no, it's not. I'm just, I'm wrestling with the reality that there are people who are going to reject God and who are going to spend eternity in ongoing conscious torment. It just, it, it, I, I struggled with that. And she says, why? I said, I don't know. I just, it's, it's hard that people, that's what they want or that's what they're going to end up with. And she says, it's not a problem for me. I said, okay, teacher, teach me. She says, you know what I do all day? And that was a season of uh, five and a half years when Danny, as a prosecutor, prosecuted domestic violence cases. Domestic violence, child abuse. Her cases sometimes would bleed over and work in conjunction with the sex crimes department. She's like, with what I see all day, every day, I hope there's help. I hope there's justice. I hope God has wrath. She said, good night. And she went to bed. <laughs> and I've never forgotten that conversation. Because to the people that she was spending time advocating for and defending every day, they wanted a God who saw and who cared and who did something about it. But as followers of Jesus who live not just in the reality of the Old Testament, but the reality of the New Testament, this is not the end. The end is not God's wrath. The end is the cross. Here's what it says in Obadiah 1.15. For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and gulp down and be as though they had never been. In the book of Obadiah, Obadiah speaking the words of God is saying, Edom is going to drink the cup of God's wrath. And they're going to drink every last drop. But the hope that we have today is that in the Gospels, Christ drinks that cup. The cup that was ours, the, the, the injustice that we've done, the wrong that we've done, the wrath that we deserve. Instead of us drinking that cup like Edom does, Christ drinks that cup. That's why in the Garden of Eden, in Matthew 26, Jesus says again a second time, Jesus went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. The wrath that we were supposed to drink, Christ drank on our behalf so we could be free. This is why John says in John 3, 36, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. This is our hope as followers of Jesus that we have all stood in pride opposed to God. We have carried out injustice against other people. We have wronged them. And though God's wrath is on the unjust and the proud, in Christ we can be forgiven because he takes what was ours. And we're going to celebrate that in just a moment. Before we close, I want to hit some next steps 
as you prepare for this week. And the first one is this. I want to invite you to do a ruthless heart inventory, searching for any evidence of pride or self-centeredness. When you find it, I want to invite you to humbly repent to God. As I mentioned, pride is hard to see in yourself. And so here's some, some statements that maybe you could listen out for in your own vocabulary. Oh, I already know everything about that. I shouldn't have to do that. I can't ask for help. I'm not always critical. You have no idea what you're talking about. When these statements are coming out of your mouth, I just want to say it's probably time to do a heart check for pride. Number two, pay attention to the suffering and the defeat of those you consider to be enemies. Watch out for what rises in your heart when one of your enemies goes through adversity. Pay attention to that. And treat them as the image bearers they are. You have never met someone, I have never met someone that was not created in the image of God. You have never met someone, I have never met someone that Christ did not give their life for. We ought to treat them as if those things are true because they are. And then number three, look to God and the gospel as our source and model of justice. Justice is a word that long before it got politicized in the 21st century in America is all over the pages of the Bible. So we're going to continue talking about it because it's a biblical word. And we're not going to allow our culture to co-opt a word that belonged to God long before we ever got to this land. But we're going to seek to use God and the gospel as our source for justice and our model for justice as we continue to go on in this series. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you give us a book like Obadiah that though it seems so foreign, is so relevant. And we pray that the posture of our heart towards you and towards others would reflect a relentless humility, knowing that you are our only hope, that you are our only strength, and only when we lean ourselves wholly and completely on you do we find ourselves unshakable. We pray that you would continue to reveal in us what needs to be repented of and where humility needs to grow. And we pray that we would lean all of the strength of our life on you because you are worthy. In your name we pray, Jesus.